3: and greetings my friends patriots lovers of democracy truth and justice believers in peace freedom and the american way now you know eventually some official brand may come out i am proposing sedition day january 6th you know i'll explain exactly why in just a moment but uh, number one and just to give you an overview of our day overthrowing democracy is not the same thing as protesting police violence Uh, Contrary to what you may have read in all the responses to my tweet, as Biden told us, we stand at an inflection point of history. The fate of democracy here and around the world is actually hanging in the balance. Hopefully our attorney general was listening to President Biden's speech. I'll get to that, as I said. Also, House progressives to restore American democracy have endorsed legislation to add four new seats to the Supreme Court. Good on them. Jasmine Uloa, who was inside the Capitol on January 6, is going to drop by. Jimmy Carter weighs in on the depravity of Donald Trump. Uh, he's got an op-ed in the, uh, I believe, it's the Washington Post. There is a lot to cover today, an awful lot to cover today, and I want to start out with my rant over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled "Sedition Day: Overthrowing Democracy is Not the Same Thing as Protesting Police Violence." You know, the anniversary of hundreds of Capitol police. House and Senate staffers, members of Congress, and people who work in the, in the seat of our nation's government, you know, food service workers, janitors, right across the board, successfully fighting back the first violent assault on a congressional session in the history of our republic. This has never happened before. Trump's followers and their fellow travelers, including 139 Republicans in the House and eight in the Senate, tried their best to end our way of government. They incited participated in and are now justifying the first violent attack on congress since the constitution was signed 235 years ago and they failed and so i'm saying hey let's call it sedition day and let's think of it like kind of like guy fawkes day i mean you know the the names of these politicians are going to get out in history along with benedict Arnold and robert e lee But the rest of Congress, including a number of Republicans, did the right thing and came back into session the night of January 6th, late into the night, and finished the job of establishing the peaceful transfer of power in the United States, which is the hallmark of democracy here and around the world. I mean, these people are heroes. You know, England had a similar moment back when Robert Catesby and Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Westminster, uh, you know, the, the Parliament building in 1605. And that was, by the way, they were trying to blow it up during the official opening of Parliament, when James I would be there, when all of his ministers would be there, when all the members of Parliament would be there. This was a massive assassination attempt. In the aftermath, as the Encyclopedia Britannica writes, quote, Parliament declared November 5th a national day of thanksgiving. The first celebration of it took place in 1606, the next year. It's celebrated with fireworks today, revelry in the United Kingdom. I think we should celebrate our victories. One of our callers yesterday you know suggested this to me. I completely agree, and I and I thank him for that. But Merrick Garland gave a speech to the nation. I didn't have an opportunity to comment on it afterwards. I thought he said a lot of great things. You know, he said, we're going to hold people accountable for January 6th, no matter who they are, no matter where they are. The one thing which you would just expect, you know, he said, that we're going to follow the facts wherever they lead. Great. He, however, left far more ambiguous the question of what will be done with those members of Congress who conspired to overthrow our government. And then he went into this really weird thing, he started talking about other kinds of crime in the United States. Merrick Garland did, our attorney general. He said, we have all seen that Americans who serve and interact with the public at every level, many of whom make our democracy work every day, have been unlawfully targeted with threats of violence and actual violence. He talked about election officials and election workers. Okay, that's Republicans going after them. Airline flight crews, that's Trump pompers. School personnel, Trump pumpers, Journalists, Trump pumpers local elected officials, U.S. senators and representatives, all of these people have been, you know, basically attacked by right-wingers. But then he gets into this weird exception. There was this one guy who went out and killed the husband or the son of a federal judge. He says, in 2020, a federal judge in New Jersey was targeted by someone who had appeared before her in court. That person compiled information about where the judge and her family lived and went to church. That person found the judge's home, shot and killed her son, and injured her husband. It's all true. Turns out that the guy who did that had no political agenda whatsoever. He had been before that judge. He didn't like the way she ruled. And he was African American. And already his picture is popping up on right-wing websites like, Hey, Merrick Garland called out this guy. And his crime was completely unrelated to January 6th. So it's totally weird that Garland would mention this and then follow it with this sentence. Because, you know, he's just cataloged all these crimes being committed against Americans by Republicans, by Trump humpers, and by Trump himself. And then he says, these acts and threats of violence are not associated with any one set of partisan or ideological views. What? Seriously? Seriously? I mean, I get it. He's trying to appear even-handed and all that, but uh, you know, no. So I tweeted about this yesterday. Yesterday afternoon, after I got off the air, after I'd finished hearing all of Merrick Garland's speech, I tweeted, "I can't believe I just heard Garland say essentially that political violence is a problem on both sides. This both sidesism is a cancer in our political and media uh, arenas that simply gives more license to neo-fascists who advocate, threaten, and then use violence." I'm astonished. That's what I tweeted. And somebody must have, or Twitter's algorithm or whatever, somehow it got into the right-wingosphere. And all these trolls came out. And, you know, a lot of them people who have like, you know, 16 followers or three followers, and, you know, even so, presumably even foreign trolls came out and started posting pictures of riots in Portland, right? And riots around the country that had to do with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And there were actual riots and there was actual property destruction. Those people were not trying to overthrow our government. I have, I have got it. I mean, you know, it's amazing. I, I, In fact, I encourage you to look at my tweet from yesterday afternoon and just look at the responses to it. It's, it's mind-boggling. The new Republican strategy is to say, oh, you're upset that we tried to overthrow the government on January 6th? Well, what about people who burned down buildings because they didn't like... Black people, unarmed black people being killed by police. Isn't it the same thing? I mean, it's just breathtaking. But, you know, it's also a variation. I want Merrick Garland did by saying that, you know, this one guy who killed a judge or killed a judge's son, you know, threatened the judge, proves that there's no one political agenda here. Yes, there is. And Biden called it out. Did you hear Biden's speech? He took it to them. God bless him. I mean, this was really what we needed. We needed to hear the president of the United States calling these people out, calling out Trump, calling him a loser, calling him a sore loser. It was absolutely brilliant. We stand right now at an inflection point in history, which is what President Biden said. And the fate of our democracy here and around the world is actually hanging in the balance. And my take on this in addition to, you know, agreeing and supporting what President Biden said, is that I hope Merrick Garland was listening after his -er both-sides-erism attempt. I'm just so over that. these people tiptoeing around the Republicans and the the neo-fascists and Donald Trump. It's time to stop tiptoeing. It's time to call them what they are. They are fascists, and they hate this country, and they are trying to destroy this country. This is the Tom Hartman Program. They want a white, male, supremacist, ethno-state. And that is absolutely inconsistent with the ideals of this nation. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today?
1: Hi, Tom. Sedition Day. I love that. Thank and you. I was going to say, treason adverted day. Yeah. And um, our democracy held. And we, the people, we endured... And I'm just so proud. I'm so happy. I raise a toast to the heroes who saved our country. The Capitol Police—they fought for their lives, and they didn't let the treasonous traitors breach those doors. And they led the Trumpsters down the opposite way of the hallway. We were saved by quick-thinking, intelligent Capitol Police. And I want to say we'd be in Trump tyranny otherwise. So we think alike. These soulless. Republican congressmen and senators refusing to pass voters' rights when their lives were saved as well. Yeah. And I was so happy, like you said, President Biden gave such a strong speech. He wham-blasted Trump. And President Biden calling Trump a sore loser made my day.
3: <laughs> Mine, too. Mine, too. I thought it was the best. That was one of the best presidential speeches I think I've ever heard in my life. Yeah.
1: Yes, these crazy Republicans who still want to be so hateful, soulless people, karma is coming for them. Yeah. And and their control will fade. And yeah. I love your show, Tom.
3: Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Jessica. It's great to hear from you. And thank you for your kind words. Ziggy in uh, Oneata, New York. Hey, Ziggy, what's up? Hi,
2: Tom. How you doing? Good. Happy New Year. Back at you. I'm going to play. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm going to play devil's advocate here and bring out uh, Peter Navarro's argument that everything that we, they did was legal. He's saying overthrowing the government is legal and that the Constitution actually advocates for it and overthrow if the people... No, it doesn't advocate for they, it,
3: but arguably the Electoral Count Act allows it.
2: I know. I agree. I'm not saying I believe this, but I'm just following along with what hey, I'm Hey, I wrote an article I,
3: in March of 2020, right? I know. You know, saying this is, uh, that's two years ago. I wrote an article saying I, I am hearing from Republican, I have, you know, I have a couple of friends who are Republicans, <laughs> I have a Republican friend and political activist mm-hmm. and, and, and and journalist in Washington, D.C., he he reached out to me and he said, these guys are planning to pull a repeat of the 1786, 1876 election. And I right. dug into it and I wrote an op-ed saying, here's how they can do it. And it's exactly what Peter Navarro said. Yeah, I agree with you.
2: Yeah. And what he's also saying that founders would approve of their action. And as far I disagree as with that. <laughs> I, oh, well, no, I, I'm, not, I'm just arguing the points, but you know, everything, what he's saying is everything that the inner circle did was legal. Right. Go ahead and investigate all you want. It's perfectly legal. And my concern is, I'm afraid that the Supreme Court may agree with them. I agree.
3: I, I I I agree that I'm concerned about that. I you know yes. And all
2: right. Well, I just wanted to bring out that point to you. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. No. I I and and this is why I suspect Merrick Garland is keeps talking about January 6th. You know the 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 violent part of this event. January 6th was one small part of a much larger plan. But I think, Ziggy, you're right. Much of that larger plan is something that is going to be much more difficult to prosecute. So we'll see. You know, uh, we will see. Ziggy, thanks for the call. Good point. Excellent point, actually. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe.
3: Betsy Woodruff-Swan, uh, the, probably the top political reporter over at Politico, after Garland gave his speech and after I tweeted that, hey, what about the, why the both sides are ism Why don't you just call out the Republicans like Joe Biden did? Betsy Woodruff-Swan reports that she has seen zero indicators that the Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland is investigating Donald Trump or any members of his inner circle. This was on Nicole Wallace's show yesterday. She said, "Uh, I've seen zero indicators whatsoever that the DOJ is investigating the people close to Trump and Trump himself in relation to their efforts to overturn the election. She says the uh, Department of Justice sources that she has, the people that she knows at the DOJ, are, quote, some of the leakiest people who have ever lived in all of human history. I think we would know if the DOJ were scrutinizing them. And then Eric uh, Lizen, uh, another reporter, says, analyzing Garland's remarks, uh, well, he he just he says this is consistent with previous reporting. Someone is selling the country a proverbial bill of goods. That someone uh, he's saying would be Merrick Garland. So, you know, I I don't know. I'm so ambivalent about Garland. I, I, so much of that sounded good, but really was generic. By the way, Sue Nethercutt, who does our newsletter, uh, we have a free newsletter every day. It's got your daily homework. Basically, it's got a complete list of ev- a link to every article and every story that I have discussed on the program. Every day, and it goes back decades or years. Anyway, I think it goes back decades. Sue's been with us for forever, uh, for a long, long time. Um, she's just, you know, one of uh, she's a dear friend and one of, you know, one one of the really important members of our team. And she's got a column that she writes now over at Medium.com, and uh, com And she she posted yesterday. Now Sue is British, so uh, you know the the remember remember the fifth of november kind of thing you know i mean everybody in england knows that americans are sort of familiar with it and she came up with this poem remember remember january 6th not november the firearms treason and plot i know of no reason why the capital treason should ever be forgot trumpsters and their companions did the scheme contrive to hang mike pence and pelosi all up alive some solid gallows laid below to prove the election's overthrow But with great bravery, some were nabbed plus sticks and knives and things they'd grabbed, flagpoles and bats. They used the rats. If you won't impeach one, indict two, or better three, then all of them we should sue. Anyhow, it goes on from there, and you can you can find. I just tweeted it if you want to find it, uh, you know, quickly and easily and all that. But the other the other point that I wanted to share with you, and I think that this is really important, is that. Earlier, uh, I, I got a call from, from Ziggy, one of our, one of our listeners, who, who said, you know, you've got the January 6th event, which is clearly illegal. You can't use violence to invade the Capitol and try to stop a, a hearing. But then you've got Peter Navarro out there bragging that everything they did was legal, except for the violence. And he had nothing to do with the violence, that the effort to get secretaries of state to overturn the elections the effort to get the states to submit dual sets of electors the gets the efforts to get republicans in in six swing states to uh, basically you know uh, say no no we don't we don't want to go along with what the people said actually could be legal under the electoral count act of 1787 of 1887 excuse me It could be, this was passed right after the election of 1876, the Tilden Hayes Act, which I've told you about many times, I won't repeat it all. But, well, just very quickly, it it was the election where the Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, lost the popular vote and lost the Electoral College vote. But four states, three states in the South and, and Oregon, which was occupied by the Klan at the time, four states submitted dual slates of electors and as a result neither one neither hayes nor tilden hit that threshold what today would be 270 votes hit that threshold necessary to you know the fifty percent plus one to say yes you won the electoral college so it got thrown to the house of representatives and the house of representatives through a long and convoluted process that's you know i don't want to go into now but the house of representatives basically said okay cool we're going to make rutherford b hayes the president even though samuel tilden got the most votes both electoral college and popular this was the precedent this is what i wrote about a year ago march i wrote about this eight months six months whatever it is march until november however months at you know half a year before the election of twenty twenty i wrote this op-ed saying i've got republican friends in washington dc who are telling me that the republicans are going to try and do what they did in eighteen seventy six and sure enough, that's exactly what Peter Navarro is confessing to. So how do we deal with this? Well, the Progressive Caucus, because part of the, the end part of their plan was, when we're all done with this, we're going to take it to the Supreme Court, and they're going to say, everything you guys did is legal except January 6th. And we're going to say, okay, fine, put the January 6th people in jail. But what we did was legal. And the, progressives, the Progressive Caucus has now endorsed legislation to add four members to the Supreme Court so that if they try this again, if, when they try this again, they will not have a backstop with six conservatives on the Supreme Court. And I think this is really important. This was proposed in the House of Representatives by Jerry Nadler, Hank Johnson of Georgia, Mondaire Jones of New York, Jerry Nadler's from New York, and by, in the Senate, by Ed Markey, the Democrat from Massachusetts. And Pramila Jayapal, who chairs the caucus, made the announcement. This is a big deal. We need to expand the Supreme Court. And this needs to become front and center in many of our conversations, because right now you've got a court that was, in my opinion, at the very least, unethically packed, the way that Mitch McConnell held back Garland's nomination for a whole year, and arguably illegally packed. We'll be getting to your calls in just a few moments, but uh, right now with us is uh, Jasmine Uoa, the political reporter for the Boston Globe, who was reporting from inside the Capitol on January 6th and just published a brilliant piece over at bostonglobe.com, the headline, I didn't think I was going to go home that day. Congressional staffers recall the lingering trauma of the January 6th attack. Jasmine, welcome to the program. Tell us about your experience on that day.
0: Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, so that day I was, it started really early for me. I got to downtown in, in the morning and, and made my way over first to the Washington Monument to interview Trump supporters. Um, so I'd spent most of the, the, the day talking to people, and I could already see how palpable the emotion and the outrage was amongst Trump supporters. I walked down Pennsylvania Avenue all the way to the Capitol because so many streets were were blocked off, and um, so down the same streets that we would see these rioters come down. And I was working in the in the Capitol in the press gallery when when we heard the the crackling on the radio, warning us to stay away from the windows and doors. We then got um, we then we then uh, spoke with a Senate uh, press gallery staffer who came over and and said, you know, we have a plan. In case the protesters—we were still calling them protesters at the time breached the building, the plan is going to be that we're going to lock ourselves inside. So you either have a choice—you, we, you can stay inside with us, or you can leave. You or you can you can go out, but you're not going to be able to come in and out. So, um, but it's just a hypothetical. Um, it's just in case. It's all very just in case. Mm-hmm. Uh, not moments within moments. A, a reporter. Uh, barges through the room and shouts Mike Pence has been evacuated and pretty soon we knew that, you know, that pretty soon we activated this just-in-case plan and so I grabbed my notebook and my pencil and I just left the room mm-hmm. and started reporting.
3: Yeah, and and w- when you started reporting where did you go, what did you see, what's your sense of what happened?
0: As soon as I left the building I, t- I tried I tried as soon as I left the press gallery. I tried going down the stairs, and I came across this this group, this bedraggled and lost-looking group of of rioters. And I, I I immediately pulled out my camera and started filming. And my mind immediately went um, to the El Paso shooting. I had covered the aftermath of of the shooting in my hometown, which was where when a self-proclaimed white supremacist drove. 11 hours on a quest to, quote-unquote, kill Mexicans. And so I had spent a lot of time um, delving into white supremacist extremist groups, and I thought, well, this group looks lost and maybe not dangerous. Maybe this man doesn't have a gun, but what about the one behind him, and what about the one behind him? And then I saw that more people were coming, and more people were coming, so I ran up the stairs and tried to get shots from above. Um, but it just seemed like it wasn't going to stop, so I left, um, I, I ran down another hall and was looking down, and I could like, look, I looked down, over, I was on the third floor, I looked, oh, I looked down, and I could see, um, there's like a balcony there, and you can see onto the second floor, and, and you can see these two doors that are, that are an entrance to the Capitol, and you could just see a dense crowd just pushing up against the door and banging and banging and banging and you can just hear the sounds of the crowd yelling you know chanting u.s.a 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 and it was just absolutely surreal
3: whoa so you write about the the trauma you know you you quote this uh, uh, grow. i'm, I'm sorry I, I don't have the entire story here in front of me but i'm not sure exactly who that was but who said that there's some kind of collective reflex of just not feeling super safe in your workplace have you, have you followed up with your colleagues and with the, the people who were there that day, how they're dealing with this? How are you dealing with it? What, you know, people, people describe post-traumatic stress disorder as, or syndrome as being when every day you wake up feeling like, hey, it's still that same day and having flashbacks and memories and things like that. Uh, to what extent is that happening? Uh, you, I, and I, I'm not asking you to speak, you know, about your own personal experience unless you feel comfortable doing that, but um, certainly a lot of people are talking about this
0: yeah yeah you know the the day after the 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 attack i just felt like i had woken up from this really long nightmare Mm -hmm. it it just still didn't feel real and i think um in speaking to staffers con you know members of congress and my own colleagues i i i I get that same sense it it seems like um you know as a yana congresswoman yana presley told me in that article you know we're in an article today um you know, she said I, we're, we're still very much in, in that immediate, you know, the residual aftermath, um, and that's how I think it feels for, for a lot of people. Um, just, and, and I think some days, you know, what I heard from staffers was that some days just doing the job is hard, coming to the scene of a crime, you know, walking past windows that were once shattered um, on floors that were strewn with garbage, um, that, that those, and, and, and then also feeling that, that alarm, that sense of alarm um, whenever an emergency alert goes off or the or the complex goes into a lockdown as it has so many times since.
3: Yeah. You still there? Yes. Oh, okay, uh, it, it sounded like suddenly <laughs> it went silent. Um, you mentioned, in fact, that uh, in uh, Iona Presley, in, in Congresswoman Presley's office, there was a panic button. She has, she's a fairly high-profile legislator and an African-American woman. Um, and therefore has been the the target of numerous uh, racist and misogynist um, uh, threats and and, and whatnot. And so she installed panic buttons in her office, which they've actually used on a couple of occasions when, when people came in and were belligerent. And those somehow vanished on January 6th. Has anybody ever figured out who took them, where they went, or why?
0: No, no, that still remains under investigation. And I, and actually, Sarah Gro, who, who you quoted, she's she's her chief of staff, and she's the one mm-hmm. who noticed, who first noticed the panic buttons were missing. I, I just spoke with her because it had been in, reported in in the weeks, or I believe in the days or in the weeks after that, uh, immediately after the attack, that it could have just been an operational oversight that it happened once when they switched offices. And she said, no, we we looked into that. That's been refuted. We were all hoping that it was an honest operational mistake that that does not appear to be the case. And we still haven't gotten answers. And of course, she said, I understand, you know, there's there's so many things under investigation. There are still so many unknowns about that day. This isn't by, you know but, you know, one of the most important, but it is one that haunts her.
3: Do you know if those panic buttons were the kind of things that are wired and installed by electricians that would be, you know, very, very difficult to rip out, or if they were, you know, some of the more modern kind of Bluetooth things that you just stick on, uh, you know, stick under a desk with a little bit of uh, double-sided adhesive and they have a battery in them uh, that would be a whole lot easier to just grab and walk away with?
0: Um, it sounded it sounded more like the the former um, mm. the way she she described it without going into too much detail. The other thing is they couldn't go into too much detail about where they were or, or what they looked like. Sure, security, I get it. But, um, but it it sounded like it was something that it, you know you could tell that it had been systematically turned off,
3: torn out. Wow. wow, wow, that, you know, there's so many of these little things that have kind of fallen through the cracks of reporting that are. Uh I you know I, I frankly had forgotten about that. I mean, you know, I hadn't thought about it in months. I mean, literally not totally forgotten about it, but I hadn't thought about it in months and and I read it in your article in the Boston Globe today. Um, and and uh we're talking with uh, Jasmine uh Uyoa. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing. Um and uh who's, who just wrote this brilliant piece in today's Boston Globe. I didn't think I was going to go home that day. Um, it's 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 remarkable jasmine uh just to to wrap this up what what lesson what message would you want Americans who are listening to this conversation to take from your experience
0: um I think you know i'm I'm looking out the same window that I was looking at, one of the same windows I was looking out and seeing the street the, the crowds of protesters and um i'm I'm still reporting on it all day today on 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 the aftermath and I think one of the things that I um, want people to take away with is just to connect the dots that, that this was part of a, this was the culmination of, of far right and white supremacist extremism, that it's part of a much more dangerous strain that we've seen escalating um, for, for years now. You know, one of the first things I covered when I was a reporter at the LA Times was a, a bloody uh, scuffle between anti white supremacists and, um, uh, white and, and neo-fascist and, and white supremacy groups uh, right outside the, the Capitol in Sacramento. So hmm. I had already been exposed to this this type of, of violence. I had seen it again in my hometown of El Paso, and I, I just hope we don't see it again.
3: Yeah, it, it is. Uh, are you reporting from the Capitol today? Is that what I asked? Yes,
0: yes, I'm actually looking out one of the, so, the same windows I was looking out and seeing a dense crowd, and, and today it's just quiet and police and just a couple of tourists.
3: Okay, so I, I'm assuming it's a somber day in the Capitol Building.
0: It's a somber day. I think that the, the mood is is light and and people are um
3: are relieved are relieved. Yeah, are, are relieved. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's made it day. Yeah, it's got to be a, a a difficult, an extraordinary and difficult moment. Jasmine, thanks so much for dropping by and thanks for writing this brilliant piece in the Globe. It's great talking Thank to you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Sedition Day, what do you think? Celebrate the fact that democracy survived? Will it survive the next five years? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Donald Trump's depravity continues. But another former president, Jimmy Carter, is stepping forward and calling us to our higher, our higher selves. He, he writes, uh, one year ago, a violent mob guided by unscrupulous politicians, that's interesting, from a former president, stormed the Capitol and almost succeeded in preventing the democratic transfer of power. All four of us former presidents Now let's see, that would be Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama. That's four. No mention of Trump, apparently, uh, as a former president. Anyhow, all four of us former presidents condemned their actions and affirmed the legitimacy of the 2020 election. There followed a brief hope that the insurrection would shock the nation into addressing the toxic polarization that threatens our democracy. However, one year on, Jimmy Carter writes, promoters of the lie that the election was stolen have taken over one political party and stoked distrust in our, election, uh, our electoral systems. And then he goes on to take on the politicians in his home state of Georgia, in Texas, in Florida. It's an absolutely brilliant piece. And I, I commend you to it. It's in the New York Times today. It's, it's titled Guest Essay, Jimmy Carter, I Fear For Our Democracy. It was actually published yesterday afternoon. But the depravity of Donald Trump is just astonishing. Uh, the Daily Beast is reporting, uh, the, two, the two reporters there, Swain. Uh, Sue Basang and uh, Will Sommer are reporting that um, as the lawmakers were fleeing for their lives and Donald Trump was watching this on TV, um, this is from from some of this reporting. According to three people with direct knowledge of the matter, the twice impeached former president had noticed the emotional accounts, particularly from Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In several conversations with close allies over the past 12 months, again, I'm quoting from the reporting, Donald Trump has repeatedly made fun of the idea that certain legislators, police, or journalists were traumatized by the violent events of that day. The ex-president has speculated that his critics are faking their trauma and anxiety for attention. Other times, he's done poor, whiny impersonations of perceived enemy lawmakers crying about the riot. This is disgusting. And then today, uh, yesterday, on Wednesday, the, you know, the day before Sedition Day, there, John Bennett, who's a right-wing writer over at uh, uh, Roll Call, right-wing publication, put out a press release that falsely said, lied, falsely said that the Biden administration was calling for vaccine mandates for kids. They're not. And in response to that, Trump put out this message, quote, this is an outrage and MAGA nation should rise up and oppose this egregious federal government overreach. Right. The day before Sedition Day, you keep in mind, January 5th, a year ago, Trump was saying, rise up, come, come with us to, to Washington, D.C. the following day, on Sedition Day. The day before Sedition Day, or the day before the one-year anniversary of Sedition Day, Donald Trump is again asking his maggot nation folks to rise up, rise up. And then Stephanie Grisham yesterday went on CNN. Now, Stephanie Grisham was the press secretary for Melania Trump and was, you know, tightly involved for quite some time with the Trump family and, and, and certainly, you know, knew what was going on and was in the White House on January 6th. And so, I mean, you know, this is the question that everybody's been asking. For, three, for over three hours, people were being killed. Five people died. A police officer died the next day from injuries he sustained that day. And what was Donald Trump doing? I mean, you had even his son texting Mark Meadows saying, please tell my dad to stop this. You had members of Congress. You had Sean Hannity texting him saying, you got to pull this off. This looks bad for us. So what was he doing? Well, it turns out Stephanie Grisham was there. And if this doesn't just like just absolutely certify who this man is, I I don't know what does. This is what she said. This is what she said on CNN. This is Stephanie Grisham, Melania Trump's press secretary. She said, uh, Melania was not there. She says, I know Mrs. Trump did not, so there's that. She said, you know, but all I know about that day is that he's in the dining room, gleefully watching on his TV, as he often did. And then there's this quote, you know, she's quoting him. Look at all the people fighting for me. And then she says, hitting rewind and watching it again. So here's Trump in the dining room of the White House with a big screen TV, watching people being killed in his name. Watching people dying in his name. Watching people trying to tear down our republic in his name. Gleefully according to his wife's press secretary who was there gleefully hitting rewind for the highlights oh hey look at that that guy look at this guy look look at this guy he's smashing a cop with a with a fire extinguisher isn't that cool look at this cop who's 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 crushed in the doors oh hey look at this guy he's he's stabbing a cop with a pole 140 police officers ended up in the hospital as a result of that day One died the next day from his injuries. And Donald Trump is sitting in the White House, gleefully watching this, hitting the rewind button to to relive the highlights for a full three hours. And an hour and a half into it, when Mike Pence refused to, to basically steal the election, Donald Trump tweets that Mike Pence has failed us. And what happens then? The crowd starts chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. And Donald Trump is watching this on TV, going, hey, this is cool. I mean, it doesn't get worse than this. I, I, I don't know how to define this as anything other than depravity. Anyway, let me pick up some of your phone calls. Kathy in Calspell, Montana. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today?
1: Hi, Tom. I like the idea of calling it Tradition Day, except for one thing. This is also the day we are supposed to certify elections. So I want to propose that we call January 6th Triumph Day, because democracy triumphs. Albeit barely. I'd, I'd Let's remind the
2: democracy
3: one. I'd find a word that doesn't so closely resemble the word Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I get your point, though, Kathy. I mean, I was just thinking of it typographically. You know, it almost look like Trump Day, <laughs> Triumph Day. Um, uh, and, and and I got to say, you know, I uh, initially when I was thinking, you know, call it Sedition Day, that you know, and and celebrate, you know, having overcome sedition. That you know, there are going to be people who are going to celebrate the fact that it was an attempted sedition, and uh, you know. But then I, you know, I was looking at the way they've done it in the UK now for uh, what's it, 1605. uh, What is that, 400 years, Um, uh, or more? 420 some odd years, 415 years um 16 years and uh you know they call it a Guy Fox day and Guy Fox was the bad guy you know he was the one who tried to kill parliament but they call it Guy Fox day Fox day and wear wear masks of him i mean i could see you know people uh, and and some people have you know misunderstood that and the Guy Fox mask has been you know was adopted by uh you know uh, anonymous for example as a you know we're the good guys um, I don't know. Maybe maybe we should call it. Uh, uh, I don't know. We need to we need to to crowdsource this, but uh, we'll we'll pull out a, a yeah Mr. triumph Fire. triumph day. Okay, we've got we've got a vote for triumph day and to vote for <laughs> sedition day. <laughs> Kathy, thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you, uh, Jim in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Hey, John, thanks for taking my call, my friend. Sure. Uh, happy gloomy
4: one six. I can't say happy insurrection. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. But, anyways, Tom, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, my question to you is how many votes does it take in Congress, and do we need some kind of Republican support in order to expand the Supreme Court? Which is
3: a very good question. It takes a simple majority in both the House and Senate according to the Constitution. Now, the Senate rules, which is where the filibuster comes from, it's not in the Constitution. The Senate rules would prevent it from being passed without 60 votes, unless they make an exception to the filibuster. Um, but the Constitution says that uh, you can modify the Supreme Court however you want with a simple majority vote. Article 3, Section hmm. 2. But does that maybe
4: tear a wrench in it with
0: Nancy and cinema?
3: Well, not just mansion and cinema. Uh, well, yeah, mansion and cinema. If you're going to amend the House or the Senate rules, um, basically every Republican there, if you are, if you're not going to be able to amend the uh, the Senate rules. But, you know, I, I'm with you, and I, and, I, and I think that, you know, assuming that you're in favor of this, I think that, you know, for Jayapal making this announcement this morning was really good news. And I am hopeful that this idea of expanding the Supreme Court by four members picks up a lot of traction really fast. I think they should also add term limits there. Uh, Clarence Thomas has been there way too long. Anyhow, Jim, thank you for the call. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today?
5: Hi, Tom. The whole mess, of course. Yeah. Okay, first of all, you need to stop and think about the fact that they had a fertile ground to train these people to do this. That fertile ground was caused by a disgusting lack of education that was created, you know, almost, what, 40 years ago, 45 years ago?
3: Yeah. yeah, when they stopped teaching education. civics in our schools, and and also yeah. you know the Klan laid the laid the groundwork for this too. These guys are simply picking up an old old playbook
5: yes it started with uh... desegregation you know i was starting high school at that time in nineteen sixty five and suddenly the good teachers were gone they created their little private schools their little private church schools they isolated themselves they here in montgomery they did what i call they hiked their skirts and ran for the hills and created their schools They created an isolation uh, that was not just educational and social but financial And that these people have been alone by themselves without any contact with other people all these years. And this was set up so that as these people graduated from school, they moved into Congress, these young white men in Congress, they take their beliefs with them, their prejudice, their racism, their misogyny, and they try to take over and return us back to 1950. This is the fertile ground that these right-wing radio stations and Fox News used to incite a riot, to create hate and dissent and try to destroy our country from the inside out. And this makes you wonder who pays for this stuff. You look at Murdoch and his first wife. She was born in Estonia. Anybody ever bothered to look? You know, Trump's first wife was born in Czechoslovakia, his, second, his, his current wife was born in what was Yugoslavia. All these people were communist educated. And this is what is... You look at now we have an investigation, thankfully, into Kavanaugh. He grew up as uh, Kennedy, who retired as as, as a, a surrogate uncle, grew up with his son who laundered the money in Germany out of Russia for Trump. All of this stuff... Uh, To me, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but if you look back at what has been done to our country in the last 40 years, destroying the middle class, destroying our our so-called basic values of being Americans and, and proud and moral and ethical with integrity, that disappeared in the past 40 years. And this became a fertile ground for these... I don't know. What is wrong with Congress? Do they have some kind of psychological thing where they have the divine right of kings because they own their jobs, they own their seats and they can do whatever they want and when they lose they have a temper tantrum and they decide to take over the government because they own it. It's theirs. Well,
3: for the it's Republicans, they know that no matter what they do and no matter what they say there are right-wing billionaires and big corporations that will continue shoveling money at them and they therefore they don't need to care about their voters because those people will re- carpet bomb their districts with advertisements that say whatever needs to be said to get them reelected. You, ha-
5: you have no idea that. what's going on down here. But we have people who worked for Trump running for the Senate, running for governor. We have people who are, they are getting ready. They, they're they talking about the new session that starts next week and what they're going to do. But they have these bills that they're not talking about that yeah. will work the same way here in Alabama they did in Georgia.
3: Yeah, I'm with and you. Nor- Norma, forgive the interruption, but we're going to hit a break here in 30 seconds that I can't control. A quick question. You mentioned Justin Kennedy, the son of Anthony Kennedy. The Supreme Court justice and Brett Kavanaugh in the same breath and said they grew up together. Did you mean literally? They knew each other. Yes. As children? I did not know that. No, tell me about this.
5: Oh, that was that came out during the the verification, you know, the um, confirmation hearings. That was that was everywhere. And I I I assumed that that? it was. I don't know, but that's one of the reasons why there is now an FBI investigation into that confirmation.
3: Wow! Wow! Okay. Uh, Norma, thank you. (laughs) I consider you a reliable source, so I'll take that at face value. Well, Um, I'm pretty sure that that's what I was hearing. Yeah, I'm going to have to do some uh, research myself. Norma, thanks so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. Always great to hear from you. On the line with us is Dr. Stephen Cermak. He is a professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University and a contributor to the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, also known as START. Professor Cermak, uh, welcome to the program. Oh, and Twitter, S underscore C-H-E-R-M-A-K. Welcome to the program. Uh, Tell us, in the spectrum of terrorism and terroristic threats to the United States, Where does what we saw on January 6th and what we've seen in all of the activity since then, where does that fall?
4: Yeah, that's a great, great way to start and question. I mean, I think about, you know, really how, you know, our response and thinking about terrorism has changed so dramatically. You know, I started studying terrorism back in 95 after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, which, of course, was an extraordinary mass casualty event. Um, And then sort of running it through through 9-11. And over the last 20 years, uh, there's just been an incredible attention to this issue. And so this particular I I mean, the the events uh, from January uh, 6th of last year were, you know, unprecedented in, in a lot of different ways, um, but certainly in, in, in terms of the magnitude as well as, as the effort, as well as, well as uh, sort of the overall response.
3: When Osama bin Laden and his, his merry band attacked the United States, bin Laden said that his goal was to bankrupt America, that, that you know, if he just waved one Flag in Afghanistan, the, the entire military from America would come running, and it would bankrupt our country. And he pretty accurately actually predicted what George Bush's response would be. But we're still here, and he's not. How much of a threat is right-wing terrorism? This white ethno this white ethno-state uh, pseudo-nationalism that is promoted by by Trump and by the people who follow him, and and these white supremacist militias. How, how big a threat to the United States is that compared to, let's say, al-Qaeda?
4: Yeah. You know, that's, a, again, a fantastic, you know, question and, and sort of it's kind of a loaded question in terms of thinking about the nature of threats and, and what do you mean by a big threat. But, you know, over time, you know, the the number of so one of the things I study is violence by uh, domestic extremists, mm-hmm. uh, both uh, Al Qaeda uh, influenced individuals, but also the far right and the far left. And if you look at, you know, the last 20 years, uh, The far right has been generally stable uh, in terms of the number of violent uh, homicides uh, and other violent events that they've participated in. And then the general rule, I think, is that there's more uh, generally more far right incidents uh, in any particular year compared to the other uh, types of groups. But uh, the but when Al Qaeda. Or associated movements uh, actually succeed and carry out an attack, uh, there tend to be more casualties.
3: Yeah, um, although I, you know, I, Tim McVeigh might have pointed the way. I mean, he was he was playing out the Turner Diary scenario. This is a novel that all of these guys, all these right right wing white supremacists, uh, you know, have read that and and the Camp of the Saints, and and in that, I'm sure you're familiar with it. In that in that book. Um, you know, it starts off with a guy blowing up a federal building, and then the federal government over-responds by trying to take people's guns, and, you know, and, and that produces the Civil War, and in the end, uh, you know, all the, de- all the brown and black people are dead, and the white patriots are the last ones standing. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing the book. It's been uh, at least a decade since I read it, but um, uh, to what extent is that still the fever dream of the right? I mean, literally a, a brand-new Civil War with... Mass casualties of largely minorities in the united States well that's
4: you know again you're you're right on point in terms of you know kind of how this all you know kind of kind of ties together you know in terms of the sort of the kind of the web and you know the ebb and flow you know of you know political dissension and and concerns uh, as well as kind of movement uh, where you see you know a a significant, you know, movement to you know, sort of involvement in in these types of groups, white supremacist groups and others, you see a growth in those types of hate groups. You see some growth in, in terms of the amount of, you know, violent activities and concerns, uh, you know, that has been occurring over the last, you know, five or uh, six years uh, and some backlash uh, because of that. And so, You know, I I think the nature when you talk about the Turner Diaries and other things, again, when you think about 1995 and and how much technology has changed and how much uh, and how uh, people talk about these issues, not you know, by buying a book, you know, or reading, you know, racist newsletters. They do it on online, uh, uh, in social media, uh, and that's really a big part of the sort of driving force behind both, uh, you know, kind of the radicalization towards extreme views, as well as radicalization towards action to, right. to sort of support we, those we views.
3: We have had right-wing terrorism in this country for a long, long time. I mean, uh, after the failure of Reconstruction in 1877, um, you saw the, the reemergence of the, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, or the the, the the major emergence of it, and of course, it went on steroids after Woodrow Wilson <laughs> played Birth of a Nation, you know, in the, in the in the White House, and this incredible recruiting film became the number one movie in America for the Klan. Um, and we have tried we've tried demonizing people who are racists and and you know trying to uh, damage America. We have tried imprisoning them. We have tried marginalizing them. Um, uh, I I even remember, I was a reporter uh, back in the 60s in Lansing, Michigan, a little station, or actually it was the biggest station in Lansing, WITL, and uh, was doing news there. And we had a couple of guys from, uh, a guy from the state police and a guy who, as I recall, was with the FBI or maybe the, uh, the Treasury Department, show up at our radio station and say we're going to be busting a bunch of tax protesters just down the road here and there's going to be a lot of chatter about it and we'd prefer we would we're asking you not to report on this because we don't want these guys to get the publicity that they crave and bob the 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 uh, news director and i had a long debate about whether we should do what they said or not we ultimately ended up doing it But, you know, that's another way of dealing with it, which is you deal with it with law enforcement and you try to keep a lid on it, you know, in the media. I mean, what's the most effective way to deal with racist, hate-filled terror threats in the United States?
4: Yeah, that's, again, you know, uh, a fantastic you know, question, and I think there's been incredible investment, you know, by governments, uh, you know, by the federal government, about state and local, in t- terms of thinking about that. In terms of, you know, people, you know, we've learned so much about, you know, why people radicalize towards particular issues. Uh, and then more importantly, so is educational they, a solution? Yeah, I think so, and sort of engaging. You know, you know, you know the as you know, and you talk about these issues a lot is sort of the you know the political divide, and you know. But how do you engage
3: somebody who who says that you know because of the color of your skin you're not a fully human person, and that they intend to hate, that they do hate you, and intend to kill you? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it.
4: Yeah, I don't get that either. You know, you know because you know the people who feel. Uh, disenfranchised politically right you know in terms of uh, trying to engage them in that w- uh, in that way I mean there's you know community programs you know responding to hate uh, programs uh, bringing in people who are former uh, people who are formerly involved uh, in hate, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. even serving time, uh, you know, reaching out. Do those programs work? I mean,
3: I had one of those guys on the program about six months ago, and uh, he he thought that it was helping. But it it seems like a a drop in the bucket.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, anecdotally, you know, there's just not many systematic reviews of that. But, uh, you know, I I think in terms of... uh, you know, the potential uh, for ways to engage, uh, you know, I I think it's something to explore further, for sure.
3: Fascinating. Dr. Stephen Saramak, the uh, professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University and a contributor to START, the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism uh, at cj.msu.edu on the internet and C, uh, excuse me, S underscore C-H-E-R-M-A-K on Twitter. Dr. Saramak, thanks so much for dropping by. Great talking with you.
4: All right. Thank you very much, sir. My pleasure. Thank you.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
3: Gail in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Hey, Gail. A little less than half a minute here. You got a quick one?
0: Yeah. To overcome day.
3: To overcome.
0: Huh. Yes.
3: As in we overcame... We didn't
1: become fascist
3: yeah there you go okay win. to overcome day well we've got some great suggestions gail thank you we've got some great suggestions here i do think we we need to brand of the day i think that the democratic party i think the nation frankly should brand the day so that we never forget it because this is the day that democracy almost died but didn't we succeeded other countries have fallen many other countries have fallen we didn't we're still here so anyhow, can, if we're going to stay here, we need your help. Get out there, get active, tag, your it. And have a great afternoon. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back the same time, same place. Uh, so have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.